poop stone. A poop stone? Yes. Karen and I went to a renaissance fair this afternoon. <laughs> There's a town nearby that does, like, just a weekend-long renaissance fair, like, as their fall festival-ish thing, I think. Okay. Uh, and there was a booth. Um, it was selling pickles. It was large pickles. And, like, one of the guys was just sitting on a stool. The other guy was in... Appeared to be halfway between, like, a privy and, a and like, a like a stocks kind of arrangement like he was sitting in a toilet basically and their you know sales method was was heckling extended heckling <laughs> perfect <laughs> so karen and i went by at one point and sort of exchanged words with them and like didn't buy their pickles and then we came back by and they were like they think karen had gotten cheesecake on a stick which is the thing they're like, they want their cheesecake on a stick, but they don't want our pickles. I see how it is. <laughs> and so, like, we kept making each other laugh, so finally I just was like, alright, you know what? And I approached, and I was like, I don't want a pickle. And the guy was like, I know that. And I was like, but do you have a tip jar? And I just, like, put a dollar in their tip jar gratis. And the guy was like, oh, well, okay, thank you. Here, pick yourself a poop stone. And he had, you know, this basket of stones. So I picked this one up. He says, "Get it, take a poop stone to give to your wife. He would, uh, so I, I showed him, I, I picked this one, and he goes, Oh, that one's that one's the jiggler. That's the the one named after the one that when you're sitting on the toilet, like, you have to jiggle back and forth in order to get it to the top. He goes, Your wife knows all about those. And I was like... I'm not going to comment on that matter because I want to sleep in the bed tonight. <laughs> Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to a very special edition of Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I'm your host, Ethan Bartlett. And I'm Michael Lilienthal, also host or Ethan's guest or something. I, I think it's... you're also the host because I'm... this this episode is so deformed. We've literally thrown out all of the rules, and it's just chaos and anarchy. So it's absolute madness here at the headquarters of Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch. <laughs> yeah, that definitely. Our intern Jerome has left. We don't know where he is. <laughs> we can't. We can't just start doing Night Vale. That's that's a, <laughs> a bridge too far. I feel like, but oh. yes, it is. It is total anarchy, total chaos. Uh, you know, so bear with us if you if you hear sounds of gunshots, that's just the purge happening outside. It's it's not a big deal. It's to be expected. It's to be expected. Yeah. I mean, when you get rid of all the rules, yeah. So, uh, Michael and I are actually in two rooms, or in Michael Ethan headquarters, wibbly wobbly space time stuff. Uh, so that rule is gone. We are drinking, but we're not drinking scotch. Nope. So that rule is gone. And all the other rules are also gone. Uh, what we are going to do today uh, is we're calling it the first paragraph special, um, which, mm-hmm. you know, normally I would have to be punished already for having said the phrase first paragraph. But ah, no. you're punished. Aha, by not. But no, you're not punished. There are no rules. No rules. It's the purge. Uh, <laughs> um. So, yeah, uh, what we're going to do, and we, we had this idea because, you know, I often point out, and, and um, Michael, I think you have pointed it out too, that 
often in a book, especially a very well-crafted book, you can almost, it wouldn't even be exaggerating to say, you can get the whole book just out of the first paragraph. Yep. Um, you know, that, that might be putting too much pressure on it, but but especially if you read a book and then go back and reread the first paragraph, it's like uh, an overture in music almost. Often the first paragraph contains all of the themes and all of the, you know, the stuff that the novel's going to be exploring. Now, not always depends on the, the novel structure and what the author's interests and skills are, but, but often this is the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Um, We've had this idea for a while. I think that we just wanted to, at some point, sit down and dig in just to the first paragraphs of some of, you know, some some of our favorite novels. So right, and maybe this uh, will help some of you out there with some of your homework. <laughs> yes. Though <laughs> uh, so we we should make the disclaimer that we don't promise to like be you know good at this. If you cite us in a in a college paper, <laughs> your professor might just fail you, know, you immediately all, yeah fail you immediately so uh yeah so yeah this is normally the part where we'd say the rules but as i've said the rules are all gone they're moot they are moot they're they're vanquished um banished so, one might say banished. all the rules are banished say say not banished say something say death say not banished though okay. um the, I think I told you that right. Okay, okay, they're dead. They're dead then. <laughs> yeah, the rules are dead. They're dead, but not banished. Not banished. Just dead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, what are we doing? Okay. Oh, well, we should should talk about what we're drinking. Sure. We are not drinking scotch. No. Nope. Um, that rule is gone. But we do have enough like honor left to at least be drinking something. Right. Uh, well, so, I am drinking a whiskey old fashioned, uh, oh. with a, uh, a blend of different bitters in here. There's Boulevard bitters, there's orange bitters, there's, uh, cherry vanilla bitters in here. Um, wow. You're a, really a wild man there. I know. I'm totally wild. The, uh, recipe came from, uh, a package of bitters that i got from the great northern distillery we if you remember we had their uh, wisconsin whiskey on a previous episode um uh with their vanguard whiskey as the liquor base uh to this drink so okay it's very good now did you put any uh simple syrup in there or sugar or anything sugar yep yep cool sugar and water yeah no i'm as a as a very much an old-fashioned um aficionado and being from wisconsin i know i should make it with brandy but i don't i make it like the (laughs) old west style you know whiskey sugar and bitters um and being an aficionado of that drink i do appreciate your drink choice thank you i thought you'd approve (laughs) um now i myself though i have been you know getting more and more into cocktails recently was feeling in a sort of a simpler you know cocktaily mood tonight so i have made myself a dark and stormy, Ooh. Um, which is a really simple. Um, it's almost like a, a rum and coke. If you made sure to use a dark rum, so you have to use like I use Gosling, so it's that you know very mm-hmm. dark molassesy type type of rum. Uh, and then 
instead of Coke, I just use some ginger beer. Um, so, you know, ginger beer is, is like ginger ale, I guess, but spicier. Sure. Um, I probably, anyone who knows anything about these sodas has probably just like stopped <laughs> listening to our podcast forever. Flip the table. Yeah. Gave flip us the table, one star. Stopped the podcast tape, uh, took it out of their no. podcast tape player, smashed no. it on the floor. No. No. There's pools of tape everywhere. <sighs> But yeah, and then I've just dropped a, just a couple drops of lime juice into this. So, Ooh, nice that's touch. A, yeah, that's sort of your classic dark and stormy, as I, as I understand it. I never had one before, because I usually, you know, default to making fancier cocktails. But I'm not, not really fancy. a rum guy. I mean, I like oh. rum when I have it, but not like I like other things better, so I don't usually buy rum. Sure. But... Well, I got into an experiment making Mai Tais over the mm. summer. Required me to buy fully three different types of rum. Right. Need a, a silver, a, a sort of a spiced rum, and then a dark rum for those. So, um, I but I went through the other two rums more quickly, and dark rum is sort of very specific. It's much less versatile than other ones. But mm. I'm enjoying I'm enjoying this uh, dark and stormy so far. Good. Good. So, Michael, uh, would you like to lead us off with your your uh, first chosen first paragraph sure um so you know we didn't really discuss what books we would choose for this um, yeah or even or the genre or really what we were intending with it at all um <laughs> yeah utter chaos no rules utter chaos no rules so in this chaos i went way off board and i chose a book by anthony trollope <laughs> oh wait how, how far off board is that really that's I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know. Anthony Trollope, <laughs> the Victorian writer who hated Dickens. Um, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, he hated him. Um, yeah. And I'll I'll read uh, a book of Trollope when I'm feeling particularly, um, how do I say, masochistic. <laughs> <laughs> like I like that- I like Trollope well enough, you know. Right. He's 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 all right as far as Victorian authors go. Um, That's more political than most. He's what? More political than most. Right. But uh, um, he's a yeah. If I'm just really in the mood for something extremely Victorian, mm-hmm. I'm usually going to read Trollope or Thomas Hardy. Yeah. I pretty much, you know, just would not touch with a ten foot pole otherwise. Right. Um, the book I've selected is one in a series, one of his series, which if you know anything about Trollope, he wrote a bunch of different series, but never wrote a whole series in order. He would write one book in the series and then write one book in another series and then one write book, write another book that didn't have a series at all. And then go back to another series, you know, chaos, but, uh, which is the theme of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but this comes in the series of the Palliser novels, which especially concerns the Palliser family. I'm not going to go into the details of all of that family because, uh, A, you. you don't need to know, and B, I can't keep it straight. Uh, <laughs> this is the third in that series. I've read the first two. I have not read this one. This is the book called The Eustace Diamonds. Okay. So, uh... 
Yes, so The Eustace Diamonds by Anthony Trollope. The first paragraph, I will warn you, because this is a Victorian novel, the first paragraph goes on for a page and a half. Yeah, I was about to say, this is just going to be a chapter, isn't it? Just about. All right, here we go. First (laughs) chapter of The Eustace Diamonds by Anthony Trollope. Chapter one, Lizzie Greystock. It was admitted by all her friends and also by her enemies, who were, in truth, the more numerous and active body of the two, that Lizzie Greystock had done very well with herself. We will tell the story of Lizzie Greystock from the beginning, but we will not dwell over it at great length, as we might do if we loved her. She was the only child of old Admiral Greystock, who in the latter years of his life was much perplexed by the possession of a daughter. The Admiral was a man who liked whist, wine, and wickedness in general, we may perhaps say, and whose ambition it was to live every day of his life up to the end of it. People say that he succeeded, and that the whist, wine, and wickedness were there at the side even of his dying bed. He had no particular fortune, and yet his daughter, when she was little more than a child, went about everywhere with jewels on her fingers and red gems hanging round her neck and yellow gems pendant from her ears and white gems shining in her black hair. She was hardly nineteen when her father died, and she was taken home by that dreadful old termagant, her aunt, Lady Linlithgow. Lizzie would have sooner gone to any other friend or relative, had there been any other friend or relative, to take her possessed of a house in town. Her uncle, Dean Greystock of Bobsborough, would have had her, and a more good-natured old soul than the dean's wife did not exist. And there were three pleasant, good-tempered girls in the deanery who had made various little efforts at friendship with their cousin Lizzie. But Lizzie had higher ideas for herself than life in the deanery at Bobsborough. She hated Lady Linlithgow. During her father's lifetime, when she hoped to be able to settle herself before his death, she was not in the habit of concealing her hatred for Lady Linlithgow. Lady Linlithgow, it says that name way too many times, was not indeed amiable or easily managed. But when the Admiral died, Lizzie did not hesitate for a moment in going to the old vulturess, in quotes, as she was in the habit of calling the Countess in her occasional correspondence with the girls at Bobsborough. End paragraph. Wow. So, there you go. First paragraph of the Eustace Diamonds. Ethan, what are your immediate thoughts? So you said you haven't read this, correct? Correct. I have not read this. Interesting. Uh, You know, it's obviously in that great sort of tradition of Victorian Mm -hmm. novel openings and and first paragraphs. Uh, You know, in that it tries to sort of induct you into an entire world immediately right um, and to give you a basis in the the main character's entire biography um right (laughs) you know holden caulfield in um you know catcher in the rye calls it all that david copperfield kind of crap right uh which is perhaps a victorian reference (laughs) yes uh you know and that's that classic dickensian opening like for someone who hated dickens trollope sure uh uh, you know, is Dickensian in his opening. You know, like that's that's David Copperfield does the same thing. Sort of basic statistics. You know, uh, yep. Uh, place of birth, biography, parents, stuff like that. Um, but what was I gonna? 
you know, there, there are several other things going on here as well. So, like, first of all, you do have, like, three to four, I, I think I counted, other characters introduced. Yep. Um, and you have, you know, some themes going on, sort of the theme of materialism, the theme yep. of judgment, yep. uh, as well as, you know, some stuff about really some stuff that maybe goes back even to um, Tom Jones by Henry Fielding a hundred years before Trollope mm-hmm. wrote, uh, spending the entire first chapter of each of his, the sections of, of Tom Jones, you know, in a dissertation on something in fiction. Like, <laughs> you know, the, there's, there's almost an essay about character, especially in the, the first chunk of that first paragraph. Um, yeah. You know, how, what should our main character be? Should she be likable? Should she be someone we love? Um, that's traditional in, in novels, but here it seems like maybe no. Maybe there's there's sort of a... a mm-hmm. Not quite introduced as an anti-hero, but she's certainly not introduced as someone you just automatically love and support all their decisions and, and right. thoughts and so forth. She's going to be somebody you question uh, and probably don't like at least the greatest maybe there's some likable quality to her but she's not going to be your favorite character which it's interesting too you know okay you pointed out the materialism which just fits with the title of the book the eustace diamonds just trace how often the gems that she has uh, are referred to uh, despite the fact that um, her father didn't have any particular fortune um right so he wasn't the wealthiest guy but yet she does pretty well for herself so somehow she gets right. into some sort of fortune uh or is shrewd enough to keep that fortune but at the same and time even... the narrator here um which i will say this is something that the narrator does in the palazer novels and uh-huh. i haven't read too much other of trollope so i'm not sure if it's a trollope thing or if it's a trollope in the palazer novels thing Sure. Um, but the narrator does just kind of insert himself at random moments and then is pretty much absent for the sure. majority of the novel. But he's inserted himself here in the very first paragraph by saying, we will tell the story of Lizzie Greystock from the beginning, but we will not dwell over it at great length, as we might right. do if we loved her. <laughs> so, which the- Which is a little bit, you know, for a, for a page and a half opening paragraph, seems like a little bit... The lady doth protest too much. A little bit, uh, a little, little bit. You know, and it, it's actually pretty typical in Victorian novels. I find the, you know, they'll they'll say, "Well, we're not we're not going to focus on the childhood of our hero, so we're only going to do like seventy five pages about that." <laughs> right. Like we're gonna we're gonna spend about half the words any twentieth century novel would in its entirety just on this character's childhood, but we're not going to dwell on it. Right. Yeah, it's interesting that it's that the narrator has given this opinion at the very beginning of Lizzie Greystock yeah. that you know we don't love her basically in not so many words, right. um, which does kind of set her up as some sort of anti-hero. Right. So that combined with the. Um, title of the book being the Eustace Diamonds and all of her material possessions and stuff and how she seems to value the material possessions at least in this first paragraph more than um, relationships with people um, Mm. 
and knowing as I do from the previous Palliser novels uh, how political Trollope gets in these oh, books. Sure. Um, probably whoever the hero is in this book, and I don't know who the hero is in this book, uh, is going to face um, loss, material loss over and over sure. again is what I'm guessing. And yet the lesson they're going to learn, the moral is going to be that people are more important than possessions. Something like that. Sure interesting that's what i'm guessing out of this (laughs) sure and it's it's interesting too just as far as craft goes really those just even first few lines set very much a narrative tone that this is going to be an involved judgmental narrator yes who is clearly making no pretension at objectivity of any kind like no the narrator has his opinions and is going to voice them which and is fact, very the, trollop from what i've read yeah. aside from the palliser novels i've read the warden by trollop oh yeah he's super judgy <laughs> yeah, yeah. the narrator just judges everybody um, it's, it's interesting reading that tone these days because that's something that really has fallen almost completely out of fashion yes uh, it's if, having... if the narrator has an opinion it's it's kind of um i don't know it, it's almost an unspoken rule that the narrator can't have an opinion yeah and that if you know the unless it's a first person narrative where the right. conceit is that it's an account a first-hand account of some kind right um unless it's that the third person narrator really doesn't get involved these days at all it's just it's at least the illusion of objectivity. You don't have to decide whether you can trust the opinions of a third person narrator these days like that. You know, that, that sort of narrative middleman has been cut out. And these days, if we think we detect an opinion in a third person narrator, we tend to just assume that this is the opinion of the author. Yeah. Which it may be in this case too, but clearly this narrator is, involved in in the in the story somehow even if it's just as a judgmental teller yeah anyway do you have any more thoughts on this book uh nothing jumps out at me right away sure i i don't know that i have anything more to say about it um in my next particularly masochistic phase i will probably (laughs) read this through yes be sure to report back (laughs) whatever predictions are correct Yes. All right. So that's our analysis, our thorough, thorough analysis of the Eustace Diamonds by Anthony Trollope. Very good. I appreciate you holding it up for the camera so that all our listeners can see. The, it, that's important. You know, <laughs> yes. the hold it still. Hold it still. So, oh, yeah. you know, otherwise their the eyes of their ears won't be able to focus on it. I know. I know. Those, oh, those ear was, eyes are flighty okay um so i have here next for us the book gravity's rainbow by thomas pynchon Mm. um and this is a book that i have read uh it's you know i only read it the one time and i it was one of those books that i got the the um sense that it would take approximately 12 readings to have any full grasp of any kind of what's going on in this book. Um, but if, if, uh, if someone is likely to have 
heard of Pynchon in the first place, um, if off the top of their head, the books they're probably going to be able to name are either The Crying of Lot 49 or this book, Gravity's Rainbow. Um, so it's a fairly well-known book. Uh, I don't want to say too much more about it before I read the opening and um, also before I, before I uh, hear your thoughts on it. I don't want to prejudice the witness. Because you, you haven't read this, have you? I have not. Okay. So what I'm going to do, you know, Pynchon is writing in, in, I want to say the 1970s, so the paragraphs are much shorter. Um, so I'm actually going to read the first couple paragraphs because, like, the first, like, sentence or two are one paragraph, and I think we can get a little bit more if we, if we go a little bit farther. And they're almost more of a unit anyway. So that's that's my rationalization. And also the fact that you freaking just read us a page and a half. So right. <laughs> um, so very opening of Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon. A screaming comes across the sky. It has happened before, but there is nothing to compare it to now. It is too late. The evacuation still proceeds, but it's all theater. There are no lights inside the cars. No light anywhere. Above him lift girders old as an iron queen and glass somewhere far above that would let the light of day through. But it's night. He's afraid of the way the glass will fall. Soon it will be a spectacle, the fall of a crystal palace. But coming down in total blackout without one glint of light, only great invisible crashing. Hmm. So that's the first technically two paragraphs of... Uh, um, of this book. Interesting. So what do you what do you get right away before I say anything more and uh, am, you know give me give the first thing more. am I wrong in thinking that the first line comes from a different book? Um it doesn't that I know of. Okay. You could be right. Uh it is one of probably I meant to say this actually before I started reading, probably one of the better known first lines of any novel um from the 20th century okay maybe uh, that's just why i recognize it because yeah it's so it's it, well known. you probably just have heard it somewhere sure. um, the uh unemployed philosophers guild does has a mug where they they have like the most famous first lines in literature and you know the they have all like um actually the first line of david copperfield they have you know sure. pride and prejudice or uh you know the the man of a good fortune must be in want of a life a wife rather that line <laughs> one of a life. Um, yeah i mean might be true too um yeah. you know i think they had the whole the holden caulfield david copperfield kind of crap line okay. um and yeah. they have uh a screaming comes across the sky on that sure. mug so i don't know that's, if you have that mug or if you've seen i that do mug. i do have that mug so okay that's buddy. probably what i'm thinking of that um, might be so okay so that aside um the tension of this opening is almost comic book-esque uh -huh. <laughs> like starting with a bang um right. which is which is brilliant like immediately makes me want to read more um, right i i want to know what happens things are crashing things are falling is everybody okay obviously right. not but are the people i care about okay <laughs> right? right so um uh, so that's that's what immediately jumps out to me, as well as just a general tone of darkness. darkness. Uh -huh. 
which with a title like Gravity's Rainbow. So a uh-huh. couple things. That that title is really provocative because you start with just the idea of rainbow. You're thinking multicolored, but then you're thinking Gravity's yeah. Rainbow. Um, what I'm thinking of is when I learned in physics class that light does bend around gravity. Therefore, all the lights are going to shift because of gravity. And so really when rainbow is tainted by the possession of gravity, it's Mm. dark. When, when I hear the title gravity's rainbow, it's gray and black and dark without even me having to analyze or think about it too hard. I'm just picturing something gray and dark and black, and that's borne yeah. out also by technically, as you say, the first two paragraphs uh, of this right. book. Yeah, and uh, I believe that that you know your physics reference is spot on. Like that's exactly what the title is supposed to be referring to. Um, so I guess what I'm what I'm wondering about this, and you don't necessarily have to answer, but my analysis at this point, uh, I'm wondering if we're supposed to eventually come to see color within blackness and grayness. So see hope and joy within something that is bleak and dark and oppressive. Not necessarily that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, not necessarily that there's there's hope at the end of all this. But in this, uh, there is some shade of color that we can find. Almost like... um. Uh, what am I thinking of? Like, uh, not a slave narrative, so so to speak, but um, when when this is your reality, you find the nuances of reality within the limits of that sure. reality. So in sure. this bleak, dark, hopeless reality, you still find nuance within the grays, so to speak. Yeah, I think there might be something to that. It's been long enough that since I read this novel that I wouldn't be comfortable saying more than that. I don't think it's quite so uh, uh, almost good versus evil as right. as your uh, right. instinct seems to be to go to, but um, certainly something about about finding the shades and the nuance within a a colorless world almost. Sure, um, sure. I think there's there's something to that, and it actually, you know, this is one that I've actively been meaning to reread for. A while now and once i do get around to it that's that's something i think i'll keep in mind yeah. um i would like to ask you one more question okay. about this based on just what i read do you have any sense of time or place especially time like hmm. what era are we in see in a sense it feels futuristic like 1984ish yeah but also in a sense it feels medieval huh interesting not maybe not quite all the way medieval but like back far enough to sure feel backward (laughs) um (laughs) so um i guess my immediate instinct with that what you just read the first paragraph so to speak is that this takes place in some sort of dystopia Okay. That's my immediate knee-jerk reflex. Interesting. And see, I actually, I had a somewhat similar instinct when I did first read this book. I uh, 
Um, and there's, you know, the this opening description goes on in this vein for several pages describing mm -hmm. the sort of evacuation. Um, but in similar terms to this opening where it's it's if not timeless, it, it could draw from multiple times and potentially, you know, somehow I went into this book knowing relatively little about it and like little enough that I didn't even know what the setting was or, or anything like that. Um, and so when I first read it, I did think it was some sort of science fiction, you know, sort of futuristic mm -hmm. war of some kind, like perhaps the screaming coming across the sky was like, the nuclear missile that the USSR had finally yeah, launched or something. That's, that's immediately what comes to mind. When, uh, can I ask what the year is on the publication for this? Yes. I believe it's 76. I'm paging okay. through here to double check. Uh, 73. 73. So like a nuclear strike sort of thing would make sense. Right. In that sort of era. It maybe makes more sense in like the 80s, but even still... Sure. Sure. Um, so, turns out this is set during World War II. Oh, all right. So it's an evacuation. Um, I do forget uh, what they're evacuating. Maybe it's either in London or somewhere in um, in Europe on the continent. Sure. Um, there's a there's a clock tower reference, right? Uh in yeah. The first paragraph there. And I that, think there's so, something yeah. falling from the clock tower or something. Um, well, girders and Girder, the, yeah, that's glass. Right, that's right glass somewhere far above that would let the light of day through if it weren't night um the phrase the fall of a crystal palace is used yeah. um so yeah which you know again it's it's perfectly positioned so that could be a metaphorical palace or could, we could literally be talking about a palace so there's some of that right intentional archaism going on um, which interestingly serves to kind of disorient the reader Yes. In these first paragraphs, which puts you right in the perspective of the characters in the middle of this war zone, just totally disoriented. Yes. Um, and that's that's fully intentional. That's a, the theme of disorientation um, just goes throughout the novel. That's one of the major, you know, things that we keep coming back to. Sure. Um, and especially which, as... Like the idea of gravity's rainbow, which if it's a rainbow uh -huh. of grays then you are disoriented. You don't know specifics. You don't see specific colors and things. You've got to focus on it to try to see the different shades right. of, of gray, so to speak. I right. used so yeah. to speak way too many times in this discussion. <laughs> That's okay. You'll fix it in post. I'll um, fix it in post. Uh, so uh, now I forgot what I was thinking of there. Disorientation Something. setting. Yeah. Um, Oh, and, you know, as, like, this book being a World War II novel, but it's also very much a postmodern novel. Sure. Um, so, unlike a lot of World War II stories, and especially the films that came out, you know, during the era and just after it, where there's this very clear sense of right and wrong, who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, um, you know, in this novel, it's completely disorienting. There's, there's you know, very human and humane Nazis, and there's, you know, the the British secret intelligence doing just awful things and the Americans doing just awful things. <laughs> you know, perhaps they're yep. all working together at times and that's confusing, you know. Um, so yeah, it's very much this like set of shades of gray that are supposedly different shades, but it, it seems hard to, to uh, 
get a get a grip on what the actual material difference is. Right. And Gravity's Rainbow is a much more provocative title than Shades of Grey. <laughs> right. Um, only an idiot would use the phrase Shades of Grey in their novel title. Right. Um, idiot. <laughs> um, so, and and it's it's also an interesting thing because one of the, the recurring images in this novel and the recurring plot uh, plot devices, I guess, has to do with the V2 rocket that the, the Nazis developed towards the end of the war. That's the screaming that's coming across the sky. And as I recall, essentially the math that the V2 rocket used um, is the same math that you use to get the idea of gravity's rainbow, of, of hmm. gravity bending light. Um Cool. So there's there's all a tie in there and that, you know, maybe you can't get it just from reading the first paragraph, but especially once you go back and reread the first paragraph, you know, yeah, a lot of the territory that we tread in this novel is there. Which may be part of the moral of this whole special idea that, you know, reading the first paragraph, you can get an idea of what a novel is going to be about. Yeah, maybe more rereading the first paragraph after reading the novel you can get even more out of the novel absolutely and i think i've said this on the show sometime you know in this last uh nearly a year holy crap that we've been doing it yeah uh, um but uh you know often especially with a very well crafted you know novel i'll get 100 pages in and i'll go back and reread the first paragraph just to see and quite often, you know, it's um, it, it's a, almost like reading the the paragraph in a completely new light, yeah, completely new eyes. And I do I do like the the overture idea, right? That this mm-hmm. is um, you'll get everything about the tone or the narration. Um, you'll often get a lot of foreshadowing, right? Uh, you know, but it's it's the novel in miniature. Yeah, um, and I think yeah. a well-structured novel will function much like a well-structured opera, where the overture does yeah. give you that the entirety of the opera just in miniature and in suggestion more than anything. Right. Um, or so, even like a, a prologue in a Shakespeare play, like yeah, you know, yep. in Romeo and Juliet, the prologue gives us literally the whole story. Complete, you know, spoiler-heavy, whatever twenty lines of uh, of of spoiler, essentially, um, <laughs> yep. you know. But it still functions as its own thing. But you still do want to see the play, and there's it's it's effective to see the play, even with it all, or per, in some ways because of it all being spoiled like that. Right. Cool. Any other thoughts on Gravity's Rainbow? No, except that I want to read it. <laughs> well i i have my copy with i think some of yeah i have some notes in here so so maybe i'll borrow it and i will write responses to your notes yeah talk about how wrong i am in all yes. of my notes <laughs> <laughs> all right uh do we all want right. to dole out a punishment um as a special well, for this special episode with the uh um the what you can call it um What's that poet's name? I, Andrew McGonagall. Andrew McGonagall. Let's uh, roll McGonagall. out a McGonagall of the day. <laughs> it's, uh, it's McGonagall, anyway. Um, 
so yeah, we again, since this is the purge, it's pure anarchy. Uh, Absolute madness. We don't have to follow any of the rules. Um, we've decided that uh, uh, William McGonagall, who I'm now more certain that's his actual name, uh, <laughs> he he we we decided he couldn't just stay in one punishment. I gave Michael one time. He's just too good. Too good. Um, and by so too we would good, like we mean to... too bad. Yes, that's exactly what we mean. Uh, so we would therefore like to um, do essentially the punishment that I gave Michael one time. So we're going to have uh, for these specials and perhaps longer uh, McGonagall Gem of the Day. Um, we're going to uh, challenge ourselves to read a McGonagall poem out loud uh, and, you know, try not to break, uh, you know, and, and obviously as soon as we break, we lose. Right. Michael, would you like to take this one or do you want me to do it? I'll take it. I'm the guest. All right. <laughs> <laughs> do you need me to text it to you? Cause I do have it right here. Let me, I, it's just, yeah, text it to you. You got it. That's up. fine. Okay. I have I'm sending you the link from my phone to your phone. It's sending it says it's sent. If it's not there immediately, phones are broken. Mine says it has been received. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> ideal then. <laughs> oh dear, this is a long one. Okay. Well remember the rule. Just uh you know, read as much of it as you can out loud well. Without, well, Read it well without, without, breaking. without breaking. All right, ready? Whenever you are. This is The Capture of Havana by William McGonagall. Twas in the year 1762 that France and Spain resolved, allied together, to crush Britain. But the British army sailed from England in May and arrived off Havana without any delay. And the British army resolved to operate on land and the appearance of the British troops were really grand, and by the Earl of Albemarle the British troops were commanded, all eager for to fight as soon as they were landed. Arduous and trying was the work the British had to do, yet with a hearty good will they to it flew, while the tropical sun on them blazed down, but the poor soldiers wrought hard and didn't frown. The bombardment was opened on the 30th of June, and from the British battleships a fierce cannonade did bloom, and continued from six in the morning till two o'clock in the afternoon. And with grief, <laughs> the French... <laughs> you, saw... right. you did this. <laughs> you did this to me. Uh, I was afraid that would happen. But... <laughs> I'm not the one who didn't had to, had to not break. I know, but you laughed, and that made me laugh, and then it was okay. All... But reread that last couplet, quick. Because okay, it's okay, cold. All right, all right, all right. Uh, so uh, and continued from six in the morning till two o'clock in the afternoon, and with grief the French and Spaniards sullenly did gloom. It's <laughs> <laughs> so bad, William McGonagall. What were you thinking? Right. Okay, well, thank you for uh, taking that punishment, Michael. That was that was a uh, well, well and manly of you. My pleasure. Um, I will I will take one for the team next time. 
Yes. Uh, and with that, I think we're going to wrap up this very special edition of Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I think so. So, wasn't um, in a room wasn't with Scotch. Nope. And yeah. Yep. And if you like the show, uh, please rate us, like us, um, subscribe on iTunes, subscribe on Stitcher, Stitcher. Uh, Podcast Addict. Um, rate review us we don't do any kind of advertising or like anything so uh, word of mouth is is what we rely on for very important you know we said to... don't cite us to your english teachers but please cite us to your english teachers maybe they'll check us out i was gonna say especially if you think they might listen to us at all that's yeah um right you know, you know what? Yeah, in yeah. fact, suggest an episode of this. If one of the books we've discussed on this podcast, suggest it to your English teacher for them to assign to the class and just, you know, spend a class period listening to us. That'd be good. Then, you know, this you is, can spend a whole class period just sitting sitting and listening to podcasts. That'd be cool. <laughs> this, this is all part of our, our uh, quest to get as many college students to hate us as possible. Yes. There's yes. no faster way for a college student to hate you than to make yourself into their assignment. I know this by experience. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Uh, check out the other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network. Um, Pokemon Rollout. Uh, real-time... Wait, you say it. I can't... Uh, it's it's a real-play Pokemon Tabletop United RPG podcast. Yes. Um, check that out. Check out our fiction podcast, Intermission, with new episodes coming sometime. Sometime soon. Soon, yeah. Because we can define soon however we want. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> um, we, did, we did a really cool run of uh, Shakespeare. Uh, we did a Shakespeare festival um, yep. in the last month or two on the network. So there's a special episode of Michael and Ethan discussing... Shakespeare's play as you like it. Um, some other stuff. Uh, check us out at tapstreradio.org. Oh, then there's Roll to Amble, uh, which is our mm -hmm. D&D play podcast. I don't know what these terms are, Michael. I'm, I'm a... <laughs> Real play or actual play it means the same thing. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so check us out. Uh, and tune in next time as we discuss two more first paragraphs. Woohoo! And keep waiting for our next regular episode when we discuss The House of Special Purpose by John Boyne. Yes. Alright. See you next time. And see you next time. We love you. Bye.
Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener, obviated objects of oblivion obambulating about, offered unto you in the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org, from our fancy to yours.